At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Good morning. So either we're the frozen chosen or the chosen frozen. <clears throat> Boy, is it cold out there. <clears throat> Happy Valentine's Day to all of you, and so glad that all of you have chosen to, well, push through the ice and the snow and whatever else to, to come and celebrate um, the fact that we are children of God. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Amen. I want to uh, put up a couple of dates on the board for you. I want you to tell me what you think they all have in common. What do you think? What do all those dates have in common? Yeah, there's a lot of commonality there. There's a lot of 21s in there. Every one of those dates was predicted to either be the end of the world or the return of Jesus. The first one, 2000, was actually a book written by Ed Dobson and a couple of scholars that said why Jesus is coming back in the year 2000. Harold Camping came up with the second date. Actually, that's his revised date. He forgot a decimal point or he forgot to carry a one or something. But um, October 21st of 2011 was the date that Jesus was going to come back. The third one you should remember because that was the end of the what? The Mayan calendar, right? The world was supposed to be over. Can you imagine being there on January 1st of 2013? And what would you say to the guy who thought that was happening? Like, Happy New Year? <laughs> um, 2021's on that board. Did you notice? We happen to be in 2021. So here's the theory. You ready? <clears throat> for those of you who have been in church for a while, you may have heard the fact that we're supposed to, within a generation of Israel being founded as a nation, supposed to have Jesus come back and the end of the world. Well, Israel as a nation began to exist as a nation again in 1948. According to Psalm 90, this is the theory, according to Psalm 90, a generation is how long? 70, if not 80 years. Just go with it. This is the theory. 1948 plus 80 puts you at, do some math, I know it's really early, 2028. But of course, you got seven years of tribulation, so subtract seven puts you at, yeah. is this the year? <laughs> could it be? Let me just set the stage and say, yes, it certainly could be. But perhaps, I think God sits in heaven and goes, as soon as you come up with a date, it's not happening. <laughs> you know, God has veto power, right? Like as soon as we come up with a date, God just laughs and says, nope. But that's God. But that doesn't stop us from trying. We are in a message series that we're starting today for the next seven weeks in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. It's titled, What Now? 2021. It's only February 14th. And already, it has been a mess. For the last 12 months, it's been chaotic. It's been messy. It's been 
overwhelming for many of us as we deal with this pandemic, as we deal with all of the disagreements that are going on around us. So the question many people are asking is, is this it? Are we at the end of the world? And for some of us, it certainly feels like that, doesn't it? It certainly feels like we have come to the end of the world. But in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, which is the first 14 verses of Matthew 24, and just really just looking at all of what we're going to look at, we're going to look at what's called the Olivet Discourse. It's because Jesus, it's the second longest teaching sequence recorded for us by Jesus in the Bible, second only to the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus spends some time with His disciples talking about things that are yet to come. So the question we're going to try to answer is, does what Jesus tells us about the future impact our life today? Now, if you had to guess, what would the answer be? Yeah, it should be a resounding yes. Absolutely. What Jesus says is coming in the future should and does impact the way we live today. And that's what we're going to look at. Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to look at the first 14 verses. Our hope and prayer that as we look through these verses, as we study what God has for us, that we will no longer be shaken by fear and anxiety. It's easy to sing, I'm no longer afraid. And yet living that way is a totally different thing, isn't it? But how do we take song to life and get them to meet together? How do we replace anxiety with joy? How do we replace fear with courage? How do we do that? We do that by spending time in God's Word, by understanding what Jesus said and holding on to the promises of God so that they are ours and that we make them ours through the power of the Spirit. Amen? As we look at these 14 verses, I'm not going to read all 14 for sake of time, but we are going to look at them as we go through. I want to share with you three declarations that Jesus makes. The first declaration that we find starting in verses 1 and 2 is the great destruction. The great destruction. Now, and for those of you who like taking notes and want to write a principle down, you can write this. We must place our hope in that which lasts. We must place our hope in that which lasts. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple and was going away when His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. And He answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You see, Jesus is leaving the temple. In the chapter before, he has spent time in that very temple, talking to the Jews, talking to the Pharisees, talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he is pronouncing judgment and woe upon them, the religious leaders, because they have lost sight of what the heart of God is all about. They have taken a hyper-focused view of the letter of the law and forgot the heart of God, forgot about the spirit behind the law, forgot that instead of the rituals that they had wrapped themselves around, that there was a relationship with a God that they were supposed to have. They had forgotten all of it. And so in the midst of their hyper-focus on doing stuff and fulfilling all of the checkboxes, they missed the Messiah who was in their midst. 
And as a result, because of that rejection, God was going to reject them. In fact, if you just turn back to the previous chapter and look at the last couple of verses, starting in verse 37, the words of Jesus are both chilling and sobering. Notice what he says. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, these words that Jesus utters here is really symbolic. It's really, really symbolic because as one commentator says, Jesus is abandoning the temple never to return because after this point, there is no further use for that temple than to be destroyed. Because in other words, the relevance of God for the temple in redemptive history is done. It's done. And so Jesus is about to tell his disciples something that's going to shatter their world. But before we look at that, I want you to notice that the first couple of words of Verse number one are very, very symbolic. He says, Jesus left the temple and was going away. He was walking away. It really actually, if you, if you do a little biblical theology, I'm going to just get a little difficult here for some of you, but stay with me here. It's really a picture of what Ezekiel saw in chapter 11 of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 11 verse 23 says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the city, from the midst of the city, which is, by the way, Jerusalem, and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city, which is the Mount of Olives. That's what the verse says. And here we have Jesus. Jesus is God personified, right? He is the glory of God in flesh. How do we know that? John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We, we know that verse, that Jesus is the glory of God in human flesh. And here Jesus is, He is walking away from the temple. Can you hear me? I hear a weird... Could be my beard. All right. We just had that joke in the back, sorry. Um, <clears throat> So here Jesus is walking away from the temple. The glory of God in the midst of the Jews, they had missed. They had rejected him. And now he walks out of the temple, down the side of the mountain, across the Kidron Valley, and up the other side of the Mount of Olives. All a picture of the glory of God departing the temple, just like Ezekiel saw in chapter 11. You see that picture? It's biblical theology being played out physically in and through the life of Jesus Christ. And when he gets there, as he's leaving the temple with his disciples, the disciples in all of their exuberance is like, Jesus, look at all this wonderful stuff. What do you mean this place is going to be desolate? This is beautiful. And it was beautiful. The temple, this temple was the second temple. The first temple was built by Solomon. That was destroyed. But this is the second temple. Built by, originally, Zerubbabel after the exiles had returned from their exile in Babylon. But then when Herod came to power, he wanted to display his, his opulence, his wealth, really his arrogance, right? And he decided to put just money into the temple. And they started building this edifice. They rebuilt this second temple to make it glorious, to make it 
mammoth and, and just covered with gold so that it glistened in the sun of Israel. In fact, Josephus, a Jewish historian writing about the temple, agrees that it was one of the most beautiful buildings ever, ever built. In fact, he says that the stones that they used were mammoth. Some of them were 40 foot by 20 foot by 20 foot. I mean, these, these are massive. You know how much that weighs? That's 900 tons. This is, this is huge. Just got to put that picture into your mind of a huge mammoth edifice that was awe-inspiring, breathtaking. In fact, in, in Mark chapter 13, which is the parallel passage to this, Mark writes that the disciples were saying, Look, Jesus, look at all the beautiful stones and the, and the wonderful buildings. Aren't they beautiful? And what, did, what does Jesus say? He drops the bombshell on them. You see all these buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. Not one. Can you imagine what that must have felt like to the disciples? All of the hopes and the dreams of Israel were wrapped up in that temple. All of their identity was wrapped up in that temple. Everything about them as a nation, as a people, was wrapped up in that temple. They knew they were God's people, recipients of the law of God, having a relationship with God because that temple stood. And that's what they thought, all of their hopes and their dreams. And Jesus says, all of this is coming down. And not just coming down. It's going to be demolished so that not one stone is going to be left on another. Not one. By the way, all of this was fulfilled in AD 70, was it not? When the nation of Israel rebelled against Rome, the Roman legion descended upon Jerusalem and devastated it. Exactly as Jesus said. Not one stone was left on another. It was devastating for the Jews. Because all of their hopes and all of their dreams, their very identity was wrapped up in that temple. Everything about them was identified there. And yet, what happens when what you identify with what happens when every hope and dream that you had gets destroyed? What happens when everything that you thought was going to be secure falls apart? But may I ask you this morning, church, where do you and I put our identity? Where do we place our hopes and dreams? Yes, for the Jews in the first century, it was their temple, but you and I, we're no different. Where do we place our identity? Where do we place our hopes and dreams? Where do we place our confidence? It's a question you and I should wrestle with, shouldn't we? But may, I, may I humbly say that if our hopes and dreams and our identity doesn't come from Jesus, then we've placed it in places that are not going to last. That those things that we have put our faith and trust in apart from Jesus Christ are not going to last because nothing in this world lasts. If these last 12 months haven't taught us anything, it should have at least taught us that we are not in control and that things that we thought were secure are not really secure, are they? And so the question that Jesus, I think, is asking us in just these first two verses is this. Where is our faith? Where are our hopes and dreams? Where do we find our identity? I hope and pray that your identity is found in Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never pass away. You see, everything else will fade away. Everything else will come and go, but Jesus never fails. Amen? 
He is indestructible, unchangeable, unelectable, unimpeachable, unchanging, unending, unquenchable. He's everything. He's our beginning and our end, our alpha and the omega. He spoke the world into existence. He will end it. My friends, we must place our hope in that which lasts. Amen? Amen. The second declaration Jesus makes in verses 3 to 8 is the great deception. The great deception. If you're taking notes and want to write a principle down, you can write, stand strong in your hope. Stand strong in your hope. Verses 3 to 8 say this, And he sat on the Mount of Olives. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things be. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Can I just stop right there and say that that right there is a huge conversation among scholars. Is that two questions? Is that three questions? Is that one? I mean, people are just confused. I mean, what are the disciples asking? Aren't you glad you came today? Because I'm going to give you the answer. Ready? It's worth the price of admission for getting up so early. I'm just going to humbly tell you that I think it's one, one question. It's one and the same. It's three parts, but it's one and the same. Why? Because the disciples are Jews. And as far as the Jews were concerned, the temple was indestructible. And if Jesus is saying that the temple is going to be destroyed, as far as the Jews were concerned, that was the end of the world. That was the end of the age. That those aren't three different questions. They really are one and the same question. Because in their minds, if you lose the temple, you lose the world. Got that? So that's the question. When will these things be? And notice what Jesus says, verse number four. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Verse 4 starts the longest discourse by Jesus on the end times, and it's the most hotly debated passage of Scripture that you can find next to the book of Revelation. And there are more books and commentaries and I can count and, I can, you, can, and you and I can possibly try to read to get our arms around. What is Jesus saying? When is he coming back? When is the end of the age? What does it all mean? But I think that more than the when and the what, the heart of, the, of Jesus is more about so what. Did you catch that? I'm not saying that it's not important for us to figure it out and to try to wrestle with what he's saying and maybe look for things. That's not what I'm saying. But I think the heart of Jesus as he talks about this is not so much about the when and the what, but about the so what. What does it mean for you and for me? I think that's the heart of Jesus as he goes through this entire section. And so he starts by telling his disciples that there's going to be a period of time, an extended period in which there's going to be imposters that arise that claim to be the Christ. There are going to be people who are so credible, so convicting, who look and sound and you, will make you think that they are the Christ, that people are going to be led astray. And his words to them are, don't be led astray. 
they're going to say, there's the Christ, and there's the Christ, and somebody over there is doing all these things, and they sound like the Christ, but Jesus says, they're not. They're not. In addition to imposters, he says, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be international conflict. Nation is going to rise up against nation, and if international conflict isn't bad enough, there's going to be natural disasters. There's going to be earthquakes and famines, and all of this is going to happen in this time period. So don't be alarmed, because these are just the beginning of what? Birth pains. Just the beginning. Now, majority of what Jesus said actually occurred in the first century. It all occurred by the time AD 70 came about. But I would also say to you that what Jesus said not just happened in the first century. It's been happening all throughout history, has it not? Wars are a common thing going on for centuries. It's not a first century problem. It's a problem for us today. Would you agree? The 20th century was perhaps the bloodiest century of all of the centuries. In fact, more people died in the 20th century than in the 19th centuries combined. Just look at World War II. Some 70 to 85 million men, women, and children lost their lives in just that one war. The greatest natural disaster recorded was in 2004 when the tsunami hit off the coast of the Indian Ocean and almost a quarter of a million people lost their lives. Do we need to go any further than the last 12 months? 2.3 million people recorded to have lost their lives as a result of this pandemic and counting. Wars and famines and pandemics are not exclusive to the first century. They've been happening all throughout every generation, throughout the centuries. What Jesus said did occur for his disciples, but it's been occurring for every generation since then, have they not? And what does Jesus say? These are just the beginning. These are just the beginning of birth pains. Thank you, church. We will look at them as signs. We are going to look at them and try to figure it out and see the what and the when. But these are not signs. These are just the beginning of birth pains. And his heart for his disciples is that they not be led astray. Don't lose hope. Don't lose your faith. Don't be led astray. By the way, the, the flip side of not being led astray is to persevere is to persevere. Persevere means to have persistence in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. That's what it means to persevere. It means to persist in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. So Jesus says to his disciples, don't lose heart. Stick with it. Stand strong in your faith. Stand strong in your hope. Because all of these things that are going to happen are going to distract us. They're going to cause you to take your eye off of Jesus. Take your eye off of the kingdom purposes that God has for you. Don't lose hope. Stick with it. Keep your hope in Jesus. Persist in the calling that God has given to you. By the way, God's heart for us is the same as his heart for his disciples. He wants you and me to stick with it to persist, to hang in there in the midst of a pandemic that we can't understand, in the midst of all of the political chaos going around us, in the midst of all the international conflict that's coming or is here, don't let any of that cause us to take our eye off the ball. 
The writer of Hebrews says, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Stick with it. All of these things are supposed to happen. All these things are coming. If they haven't come already, they're going to come. But don't lose hope and don't lose heart. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 6, Jesus says, See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. There's a passage of, or there's a, let me just say it this way, there, there are so many things in this world that glisten and glint and shine and cause us to get distracted, isn't there? So many things that vie for our attention, and yet the Bible is very clear, don't be led astray. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. In fact, that reminds me of an old song that we used to sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. The things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you don't know what the next 12 months are going to bring. You do know what the last 12 months look like. But in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of all of the mess, in the midst of all of the deception and all of the conflict... There's one certainty that you can hang your head on, and that is Jesus. Don't lose hope. Persist. And that brings us to the third point that Jesus makes in verses 9 to 14, and that is the great declaration. <clears throat> if you're taking notes and want to write a principle down, I've already said the principle. I'm going to say it again. Stick with it to the end. Stick with it to the end. Jesus says, starting in verse number 9, then they will deliver you to up to tribulation, and you will be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and, and hate one another, and, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And then the end will come. So in, on top of international conflict, on top of natural disasters, on top of all of the rest of the mess, there's going to be spiritual conflict, right? Jesus doesn't want us to be taken by surprise. This stuff is supposed to happen. Did you notice? There's, there's conflict, spiritual conflict, both inside the church and outside the church. From outside the church, there's persecution, there's tribulation, there's martyrdom, there's all sorts of pressure against the church. And Jesus says it very clearly. He says it's happening because we will be hated by all nations because of Jesus. They hated him. They will hate us. That's what we can expect from outside the church. But it's not just outside the church that we will have issues. He says we will have issues inside the church. He says there's going to be false prophets, false teachers. There's going to be people whose love grows cold. There's going to be betrayal. It's called apostasy. Apostasy is where someone who proclaims Jesus Christ turns his back or her back on Jesus and walks away. You see that on Facebook where people say, I'm no longer a Christian. I'm denying the Christian faith. I'm walking away from Jesus. I don't believe this stuff anymore. How sad. How sad that the cares of this world and the pressures of life caused their faith to crumble. They really weren't a child of God in the first place, were they? Because a child of God, according to the Word, will endure to the end. And that's Jesus' heart 
for his disciples. By the way, you see this play out through in the book of Acts, don't we? The pressures from outside the church, from the, from the Jewish leaders, from, from the Roman legions, from, from, the, from one city to the next. There's all kinds of pressure against the church to destroy it. Then there's stuff going on inside the church. There's conflict and false teachers and betrayal going on as people who once were in the church are no longer interested in the church and walking away. It's all throughout the pages of the New Testament. But it's not just isolated to the first century, is it? It's happening even now. It's happened all through the centuries since the first century. The conflict from outside and the conflict from within are things that are meant to happen. They are supposed to happen. Jesus has told us, so don't lose heart. Don't be led astray. Stick with it. The end is not yet. The end is not yet. In the midst of all of these negatives, when we come to verses 13 and 14, Jesus gives us some encouragement. Did you notice what he says in verse number 13? Those who endure to the end will be saved. Now, let me just stop and say this. salvation is not endurance. We are not saved by our endurance, okay? What he's saying is that our salvation is proven true if we endure, all right? The fact that we endure to the end is proof that we are, in fact, saved. And that's what Jesus is saying. And over and over again in the Bible, we read that our Christian life is not a sprint. It's, in fact, what? You've heard it. You can say it a little louder. A marathon, You do marathons very different than a sprint. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes dedication. You have to stick with it to the end because that end is a long way away. Even a 5K run takes forever. (laughs) Forget sprinting on a 5K run. You're going to kill yourself. Maybe I'm going to kill myself which is why I don't do it. But anyway, um, the Christian life is is a marathon. You have to stick with it to get to the end. And the people that do get to the end prove that their salvation is true, that it wasn't false. And so Jesus says, those who stick to the end will be saved. And then in verse number 14, he says, that the gospel will be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. Did you notice how strongly Jesus said verse number 14? There isn't any qualifications to verse 14. There isn't a maybe sort of hope so kind of any wording in verse number 14. Did you notice what he says in verse 14? He said, the gospel, what are the words? Will be preached or proclaimed. There's no doubt. There it, do you realize nothing stands in the way of that mission of God? No pandemic, no global conflict, no conflict in or outside the church is ever going to stop the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing in this world is going to stand against the progress of the kingdom of God as it makes its way across the globe to all peoples. Amen? Nothing you and I can do or the governments can do or kings or anybody else can stop the spread of the gospel. The kingdom will advance. The gospel will be proclaimed and people will come to faith in Jesus Christ no matter what we do. Praise God. Amen. Amen. You just saw the video, the opening video. Pastor Biju, right? Tremendous work as part of the Timothy Project. As hundreds of people are coming to faith in Christ a day. Why? It's a Hindu country. A country that's persecuting Christians who are beating and burning and killing and decimating families who turn to Christ. And yet, the gospel is being proclaimed. 
Can I ask a question, church? Would you be here this morning if it was illegal to have church? Guess what? Even if you didn't show up, the gospel is still going to get proclaimed. <laughs> because we don't live in fear. We sang it. And yet, maybe so. Well, okay, it's legal. Maybe I shouldn't go. Folks, you have to decide who you believe. You have to decide where your faith is. And you have to have the confidence that you will stand for Jesus no matter what this world tells you. That there is a truth and a God who owns you through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And if you are His, then you will do what He says and not what the world tells you. Amen? The gospel will be proclaimed. Praise God. And then the end will come. And then the end will come. Friends, Jesus hasn't come back just yet, has He? He hasn't. If He has, we've all missed it. <laughs> so let's just get ready for the next one, all right? <laughs> but He hasn't come yet, which means we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. There's bags to fill. There's gospel to be proclaimed. And some of you are going, but I don't know how to do that. Oh, yes, you do. You know how I know that? Because the gospel interrupted your life and you came to faith. All you have to do is tell somebody else how that interruption happened in your life. I was walking in my sin and Jesus intercepted my life and I turned to him. That's your story. Share it. You don't have to share somebody else's story. You don't have to share my story. Share your story. Just tell them what the love of God did for you what the mercy of God did for you, what the grace of God did in your life to pull you out of the kingdom of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of light. Amen? Folks, that's what happened to you. And if it's happening to you, let's hope and pray that your story can help someone else because it's your life lived that makes the gospel alive. The gospel will be proclaimed. Friends, you and I have a lot of work to do. <clears throat> the gospel or the book of Acts really depicts... <clears throat> the growth of the church, that no matter how much they tried to squash the church, the church expanded. The church grew, and God added to their numbers all who were going to be part of the church. And that is true even today. The church is growing faster in China than in any other part of the world, and even there, the persecution is so strong. People are dying for their faith in Jesus Christ, and yet the church explodes. We may never know until we get to heaven how many have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, you and I, we have neighbors, we have co-workers, we have family who don't yet know Jesus Christ. Your job and mine is to share the love of Jesus with them. Amen? We have the work to do. That everything that happens in our life, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's a, a conflict, whether it's in our life, in our job, in our nation, in our world, no matter what that opportunity might look like, it's an opportunity and a responsibility for us to share the gospel with those around us. Amen? So, Christian, if you're here, I know you're here. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, may I say that until Jesus returns, wait patiently. Wait patiently because he who promised that he's coming back will, in fact, come as he said he would. Has he ever failed? Church, that's a simple answer. Has he ever failed? Some of you are kind of like, maybe, I don't know. Maybe another cup of coffee and we'll be there. Let's try that again. Has Jesus ever failed? No. Amen. No. So if he says he's coming back, what's going to happen? He's coming back. He's coming back. 
So wait patiently. You're going to see wars and you're going to have rumors of wars. You're going to have earthquakes and pandemics and famine and all of the rest. But these are not the signs of the end. These are the beginnings of birth pains. The end is not yet. So wait patiently. And while we wait, endure. Endure to the end. And while we're enduring to the end, share something with someone else. Share what God has given you. Share the love of God that God has shared with you. Share your story with someone else. That's the gospel. Friends, if you're here, you don't know Jesus Christ. I'm so glad you're here. What a wonderful day on Valentine's Day to come to church. And while we try to love one another, the greatest love message ever given was on the cross, where Jesus, hanging on three nails, said, I love you, as his blood poured out of him. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to make sure you understood that it wasn't just somebody sitting somewhere up in heaven saying, I love you. He demonstrated that dying in your place and mine so that you and I might have a relationship with God we didn't deserve. I hope and pray that you will turn from your sins and accept the love God has for you. You can go all over this world and not find that kind of love, that kind of mercy, that kind of grace that will carry you through every one of your tomorrows until he comes back. Amen? Would you stand with me and let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Thank you that even though you haven't returned, your word tells us to not be led astray. Father, thank you that your word never fails, that you never fail, and that your love demonstrated for us on the cross was so true, so wonderful. In the midst of the gruesomeness of your death, you loved us so much to stay on that cross and die for us. Father, would you continue to impress upon us your love? This Valentine's Day, thank you that you have already said, I love you. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, would today be the day that they turn from their sins and accept you as Lord and Savior? That they might experience your love, your grace, your joy and peace in a profound way today. And Father, for my brothers and sisters and myself here this morning, that that would be true of us, that we would use every opportunity to share you with those you have placed in our way that it would be your love story for us that we share with those around us. And so, Lord, as we wait for your coming, may we wait patiently, persisting, enduring, and doing what you have told us to do so that we might bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.